the more decisions we can make in our life that we get to make, and sometimes they're sooner than we want to make them, then we're in control of our life. But if we're um, careless and don't, or, or unrealistic, or um, just not wanting to face it, then the decisions are going to be made for us. And it never feels as good, even if it's the exact same decision. This is Zia Hassan, and you are listening to Gently Down the Stream, a personal development podcast. If you want to transform your life, be a more engaged parent, a more present spouse, if you are stuck in your career or in any part of your life, this show will teach you powerful ideas, habits, and skills so that you can focus on what's most important to you. All right. I'm sitting here with my mother-in-law, Amy Lieberman, and we were talking last night about a number of different topics, and I thought it would be really cool to do an episode about some of the things that we were talking about. And then I realized, you're here. You're here in my house. Here I am. So you can be a guest on the podcast. You can be the very first in-person guest. I've had other guests, but they're they're virtual. So, I mean, as a result of the... Uh, and we're two fully poked vaccinated people. So yeah. here we go. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, first of all, I think for some context, I, I imagine that a lot of people listening to this will already know and be familiar with the work you do, but maybe give some context. What What is what is your day-to-day look like in, in the work that you do? So I have a business, a company called Estate Matters, and I'm in my 10th year of my company. And um, I work as the liaison between the professionals and all of the families helping families as they navigate elder issues or issues of transition around aging. And so my day-to-day work is completely varied. Right now, it's complete tax work for all my clients. But generally, um, I it's everything from helping people just manage uh, their parents' lives when they live far away to um, some people I do their entire life. All their mail comes to me and they are disabled in some way and I take care of everything. And other people, we just do problem solving around what's happening in their life or their loved one's lives and how we find the right solutions. So it's quite varied, which I think is my favorite part about the work. Yeah. Is that no no day no two days are even slightly similar, but we talked last night about how I work mainly with elderly people, and I never thought I would enjoy that, and especially hanging with your son, my grandson Desi. I'm realizing how much I love working with children, but it's such a different part of my soul and my spirit to work with older people versus working with children. So, how did you get into it? If if it wasn't what you were originally planning to do. How did it sort of come about? So this this career for me is definitely a second career. I worked for many, many years. For I worked in a law firm for um, over 25 years, and I had the job I meant to do for two years, and I stayed for actually 30 years, I should say. It was about 30 years. Um, and I loved it. I was a paralegal in a law firm, and I really always meant to go back to school to be a psychologist. And the more I stayed at this firm, it became my family. and um, it was it was great work. It was interesting work. I worked in const- mainly in litigation until I moved to states and probate um, towards the end of my stay there. And then um, and the states and probate work I really loved, but it was mainly I was working with paper and never with people. And soon I realized I want to work with people. 
Um, and whenever I would help uh, meet someone at the end as we were signing off their tax return or finishing their probate, or I would think, God, I wish I had met you and I wish I could have worked with you. So now my work is complete interpersonal work. I work 90% with people and I just love that work. And and you have a very rich family history. It feels like every time I see you, there's there's some story that I haven't heard that, that emerges about somebody in the family that I've never heard about before or some kind of connection that you have. So how has, now that you've, you've been doing this work for, I guess, a decade now almost, right, right. Um, how has how that, that changed how you reflect and how you look at uh, memories of elderly people or older people in your life when you were uh, a child? Yeah, it's interesting because I um, I now am realizing that I paid more attention to the elderly people than I ever thought I did because I have so many vivid, strong memories. And um, our family table, I think much like your family table, Zia, we just sat around and told stories of our, um, and some of them were very, very old stories. Um, they, our parents... Um, my parents had their um, el- their loved ones, and whether they were deceased or not, always close in mind and close at heart. And we talked about it all the time. And everything I've heard about your family, it's quite similar. Mm. And um, I was intrigued by those stories. And so I think it's helped me have such a respect for um, elderly people. And I always look at, I worked with so many clients with dementia. I lots of my clients have dementia. And I always look through to see who the person they were, as opposed to what some of the things they're saying to me, which don't make sense at the time. But I can always try and look at the teenager. Um, And I've been thinking about this lately, their passwords give me such clues to who they are. And their passwords, because in especially the security questions on the passwords that they set before they had the dementia. So it's always, what was your first dog? What was your first car? What was your favorite sport? What was your f- childhood best friend? And, and so it gives me clues to talk to them about, tell me about your best friend, Mickey. And then it brings them, or, or wow, you grew up in the town of Nashua. <laughs> I haven't heard of it. Um, tell me about that town. And I think if I didn't have some of those clues, I would not be able to work as keenly with, the, with their past. You know, that, that brings up something interesting in, in what I do in, in terms of coaching, which is I help people find their core values. And I do it through a, a lengthy kind of process of digging into um, things that bring them joy, things that piss them off, things that um, they admire in others. But it's interesting to think about the password thing and the the security question thing, because when you think about it, some people, I guess, make a random password of characters and numbers and letters, but a lot of people will make that password meaningful to them in some way. Like, it might be like the name of a relative, the name of a child. Um, it's, it's but really the security questions and, yeah. are, are old. 90% mm-hmm. of the security questions are your past. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, and in, in it's just been... Um, I, my, Tom, your father-in-law, my husband, Liza's dad, and I talk about uh, writing a book about my experiences. And really, we're at the point where um, he's going to probably be my ghostwriter, but we have uh, chapters. And one of my chapters is passwords. Oh, my. Because, really? Yeah. It's, it's absolutely a chapter because uh, we spend half our life. I mean, computers and passwords and all of that is one of the most frustrating things for seniors. 
And and at their moment of frustration, it reminds me of when a child is having a meltdown, and then finally they'll they'll scream out what the problem is, like I'm tired or I'm mm. hungry. Or so with with my clients, when they're most frustrated, they'll all of a sudden utter what's most frustrating to them, and they mm. go, "That damn computer!" <laughs> you know, my parents didn't have computers; they didn't have to deal with all these passwords, and you know, and. Um, but so we work with passwords a lot. And then it's the big security when we move the passwords to my passwords mm. versus their passwords, um, which means that now I'm in control of their accounts. And that's always a very sensitive moment. Right. Um, but and do you come up with the password, a new password then, or do you try and honor their... Well, again, previous... you know, it's funny. Some people, if I ever think that the family members are going to have access to these accounts or the person, I always have hope that maybe we're bringing the person back. So I always have the best man at your wedding is their best man. Mm. Or, you know, and every once in a while we luck out that it's someone that's similar to the best man at my wedding and we got the same name. <laughs> but but I always, and sometimes just out of respect, I use their passwords, answers, and not my own personal. Rarely do I do my own personal answers for their questions. Yeah. It's how I keep it all unique. I use theirs. Yeah, and I guess that that's even better for them because then they can they, they connect to the new password. Right. And it's so funny we're talking about this. I've never really had, I mean, I have it as a chapter of my book and I give it a lot of thought, but I've never really talked much about it. Well, what are some other chapters of of the book? Now I'm curious. Well, oh gosh, um, cars, (laughs) giving up your, (laughs) giving up your car is a really big one uh, for my clients, giving up and just sort of when we move to bringing in drivers or um, COVID has kind of changed everything because no one's been driving at all. So I have a feeling we've now had an automatic give up your car during mm. this year. Because if you haven't driven for a year, you're kind of done. Yeah. So that's kind of an easy one where we we can say, look, you haven't driven for a year. You, you don't need a car. And then they'll look at me and say, but I haven't gone anywhere. And I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> and they're like, I guess you're right. And so yeah. um, so that's one of our chapters. Um, but, so, but so the cars, there's a whole chapter on that. So is it because... In the same way that passwords are so meaningful, is it is it sometimes there's an emotional connection to the vehicle? Yeah. Been... Oh, no, not to the vehicle, to driving. I driving. always say that driving is the last holdout of the human independent spirit. Oh, that you take, that. whether someone can even physically get in their car or and drive or not. I mean, some of my clients really are so severely disabled, they could never drive. They could never even probably make their way on their own to find their key, you know, do all the 17 steps to actually get in a car and go into reverse. They couldn't do nine of them, but they still need that hope that they could always have their car. And that to them is a sense of freedom and independence. And I've heard everything from, Amy, I earned that driver's license. You don't know how, that's one of the most important things I have is my car. Or, um, you know, it just, it's deeply personal. And when it's taken away, and especially if it's taken away abruptly, it's um, it's a real, it's not necessarily an insult, but it's almost just like a bruise to their own personal persona of who mm-hmm. they are. Like, And sometimes they'll really come out and say, I've never imagined myself a person who doesn't drive. Mm-hmm. That was never uh, the old person image I had for myself. And then they'll always end it with, and by the way, I can still drive, you know. Yeah. And I always say, I'm sure you can. It's just why if you don't have to. And we have these wonderful drivers for you, or we have we have so many other ways for you to get around or, you know, it, it it's must... a tough one. It's a really, and I think you have to have the utmost of respect for them mm-hmm. um, as you, you know, 
talk about coaching. You've got to, you know, that that is a whole life, you know, you've got to kind of coach them to that decision. Yeah. And, and the most thoughtful families wait until the person is ready to get there, but it's not very often that happens Mm. usually. So I, I steer my clients in a way that I try and help them make decisions while they still can for themselves. And I use the example so that you have a role in your decisions even though they're hard decisions. Right. Another one is moving. Right. Moving from the place you love into a place that has more um, support. Yeah. Um, they don't want to do that. Like, I, they're, they're old people there. Yeah. I'm not going there. Whether they're 92 years old, I'm not going. It's sort of like the same feeling, I suppose, of getting rid of your car, where it's like, I don't use it, but just the fact that it's in my driveway, that I could go into it and-, and It's my car. And, right. I, and they always will hold up. And these are my keys, and this is my car, and I right. bought it. I paid the insurance on it. I have a driver's license. I know where I'm going. I need my car. So has, has there ever been a situation where you've, in your mind, know that like this car is costing more money than it's worth to actually have sitting in the driveway? And, and so how do you, without taking away their freedom of choice, how do you kind of guide them to this? Uh, because I, I think they probably deep down know it's not doing them any favors. It's just this like attachment to like wanting to drive. So how do you get them there? I mean, yeah, usually it's not the financial. I've never even used the financial model mm, because okay. that doesn't. That, you know, even if I say, wow, we could sell your car, and da, da, they're like, I'd rather have the car than the money. So, I mean, financial, I've never, I don't even know that would work. But it's really more literally, um, I go safety. Mm. I just say you have lived, uh, uh, one comment I make a lot is, they always say, I'm a very good driver, and mm. I have not had accidents. And I always say, and that is the perfect place to end your driving career with that story, <laughs> as yeah. opposed to, and they backed out. And killed four people, right. you know, or, I mean, I get pretty graphic with them sometimes because to me, it is a life or death. Like you could kill people. Yeah. And, and, and then I'll tell them stories. I will print out articles because it happens all the time. Right. And it quite often happens in the facilities where they live in the, these parking lots. So I try and, um, so there's, that's one tactic and it's not even a scare tactic. It's for real. It's safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really, back to this sort of guiding, um, because this too feels like coaching now that I, you know, of if we, the more decisions, and I think we should all look at life this way, mm-hmm. the more decisions we can make in our life that we get to make, and sometimes they're sooner than we want to make them, then we're in control of our life. But if we're um, careless and don't, or or unrealistic, mm. or um, just not wanting to face it, then the decisions are going to be made for us. And it never feels as good, even if it's the exact same decision. It doesn't feel good if someone made it for you. Yeah. So, but what it forces you to do is decide some things a little earlier than what you're interested in or facing some things that are very difficult to face. So I try and kind of guide them and help them to see who are your allies. These are the people that we're all going to be here for you. We're going to help you we're going to do this together because you're in the driver's seat now. You're making the decision right? versus um, just ignoring this and then the decisions can be made for you. So how do you, I mean, what would you recommend? Like if you were giving kind of blanket advice to people that are, we'll say aging, but even I think anybody, like you were saying, could benefit from, from this practice of constantly questioning 
what do I really need and what am I holding on to that I don't need to hold on to? Where am I being unrealistic about my life? What What is a good structure? Is it is there a daily practice or a weekly practice or a quarterly practice that you would recommend that everybody could, a question that people could ask themselves that related to that? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is, you know, my response is going to probably be a little too dramatic, but but really kind of like the guardrails for me for, for life really are kind of like, it's and it's it's morbid. I'm sorry, but that's it's okay. like we're all gonna die. We're all gonna die. That that's just sort of the end guardrail here. Sure. We're all gonna die. So therefore, um, that that is a reality that you have to face sooner or later, and it can't be the like don't talk about that. Don't talk. You know, it's like it just it should just it helps us live life mm-hmm. if we know that. So if you start there with an acceptance of, and we all age. And um, there's this wonderful word, and I, I'm not sure what language it is, but wabi-sabi, yeah. um, which means like aging with the honoring the, the um, dilapidation of ourselves as we mm-hmm. age. I mean, it's kind of like as we age, the beauty and the degrade, yeah. honoring the two together. Right. So once you sort of kind of get past that concept and then realize we're all going to evolve and change. Um, I think it is really listen to the, the, the people you love, surround yourself with people you love and trust and listen to the people you love and trust as much as possible. You know, we, my, Tom and I have always said that we will, we won't be like our parents. Of course, you know, none of us will be, we're all going to be different. We're going to be better. And we're going to listen to our kids because we have so much respect for you guys. There's no way we, why would we ever not listen to what you tell us? And it was fascinating during the early stage of the pandemic, like before we knew it was a pandemic, the week we didn't know we had plans the weekend of March 13th. And we heard a tone of voice. From you and Liza and our son Jake, that I have never heard before, where you guys were like, like, like yelling and almost scolding us. Do not, you know, language with "do not," which we had never heard. Yeah. And I remember looking at Tom and going, "Yeah, this is what it's going to look like." Because we we said we honor you and respect you. We think you're being really over dramatic about this. And with, of course, within a day, we were on your page. Right. (laughs) Well, I I remember telling my mom. I was on the phone with my mom. And hopefully she won't mind me telling this story. <laughs> I don't think she will. Um, but I said to her, um, you know, please don't go to the grocery store. But this is back when we thought, you know, it'd be over in like a month or something. So it was like mid-April. Yeah, give it two weeks. So we were in April 2020, and my mom was still going to the grocery store, which now we know is relatively safe if you're wearing a mask. But at the time, it was pretty scary, and, and cases were kind of skyrocketing, and so I had told my mom, you know, similar speech. I said, please don't go. Let me order for you. It's super easy to order groceries. I've done it the entire pandemic. I haven't set foot in a grocery store. Um, and she said, but I've seen those shoppers. They go and they pick the wrong strawberries. And I said, mom, if if you die, I'm going to put this on your gravestone that she died for slightly better strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. And she thought it was funny. It was also kind of morbid. And <laughs> but like, you have to, maybe this, maybe this speaks to actually your question though. You brought, you, you completely synthesized that issue down to the complete, what were you most afraid of? Yeah. I, so, so maybe it's really just like looking at the honesty of what is my anxiety about every time my kids bring up this subject of that I should consider um, not, you know, giving up my car? 
Yeah. What is it that that raises the hair on the back of my? You know, what is it? Yeah. And what then you kind, of, what am I holding on to? And then you kind of keep breaking it down, breaking it down. You broke yours down very quickly. Of, I don't want you to get COVID and die. Right. Bottom line. Therefore, you went right to on your, you know, yeah. you're saying strawberries <laughs> right. are more important than your life, right. and you went right there. Yeah. We don't always all go right there, but right. if we can guide people to go right there. Yeah. And the other thing is really just communication, and it's the really, really hard subject matter. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the other I've side. Been, sorry, I was gonna say the the other side of it is that I because I later kind of came to this realization that through coaching and through other things that I can say that, and I can I can use that harsh tone of voice, and of course the world kind of we we were kind of ahead of the curve i think because you know we're on the internet and we 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 read articles and we see these things and then we talk to our parents about them and then of course it became common practice to to not you know to be very cautious and wear a mask and all of that but then i also realized and i had to come to terms with like there are things that my parents will do in this pandemic that i don't think are or my, my parents or anybody's parents that i don't necessarily think i would do or would be the safest thing for them but i'm not them and it's it's that hard thing to like sort of like let go of the fact that even though these are my parents and I love them very much and I'm concerned for them, um, they are their own people and they've always been their own people and uh, they, they get to make their own assessment of risk. Um, so that was kind of an interesting. So we have the same with it's just like with children that you you have your what is your bottom line? You're like drop dead. And, you know, generally it's safety for for people. Right. Um, they'll make it about all sorts of other things, but generally you got to bring it down to safety and, um, what, you know, safety, what is most important. And then the real curveball and all this that we're not talking about is the fact that, but then when people have dementia, paranoia, Mm. um, you know, um, disillusionment, um, all sorts of things come into play that then you're now working with kind of the a third person. It's like, that's right. not really dad. That's like dad with dementia. Yeah. And dad with dementia is going to help try and make a lot of these decisions that aren't the way dad would have behaved without dementia. Right. And in those cases, I feel like then you kind of have to come back to that thing. Step where I, in. I need to actually have a little bit of control here yeah. because their fa- their faculties are slipping. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's the, the trickiest. It, that's probably the trickiest work I do. And mm-hmm. the trickiest part is when people are still upright and moving and able to do lots of things, but they definitely have pro- dementia. Well, I, I just want to like comment on on how intricate that must be, that work must be, because I, I as a coach take people that are somewhat at least mentally healthy and then bring them from good to great, mm-hmm. you know, so they have that, you know, you, I'm not treating anybody for anxiety or depression because th- that's not my wheelhouse. I'm not a therapist. I don't know how to do that. But if you want to thrive, that's where I, I will I will take you in that direction. Um, if you really want to live the life that you want. But if you are working with someone who has dementia, you know, and trying to coach them because, you know, they also do. I, I feel like, I mean, you must get some resistance when you try and oh, yeah. give advice or, or yeah. consult with people. So it's like, you you know, to, to delicately bring someone to their own realization when their own mind is degrading. Failing them. Yeah. Well, and so the guardrails there are, you know, kind of the back to the Maya Angelou um, quote of, People will never remember how you 
or what you said and what you did, they'll only remember how you made them feel. Feelings are the last to go with dementia. And I think about this all the time. And there's always a point I send families this, it's called the bookcase. I probably have sent it to you um, that talks about how, you know, you, or the bookshelf, how you look at a person's mind like a bookshelf and with all stacked up with all the books in the healthy life. And as you start, as dementia starts settling in, the bookshelf starts to rock. Mm-hmm. And the first thing to fall are the top books. And those are the newest memories. And it's shake it all the way down. And, um, and as books are falling, you know, the, the, you're losing more of the person. But what stays at the bottom are the oldest memories. And quite often it's feeling. The emotion mm-hmm. is there at the end. And so you have to realize that they're not going to remember what you say. And they're not going to remember our conversation from a minute ago, let alone a week ago, let alone. Um, but they will always remember how I make them feel. Yeah. And I carry that with me everywhere I go with with working with people, whether they have dementia or not. Well, it, it reminds me of like when when Desi was an infant, you know, and the we try we we obviously he can't understand what we're telling him. We, we can't give him directions when he's a one month old. We can't tell him, oh, it's OK. You don't need to cry. There's really nothing that's that upsetting right now happening here. Um it's all about the feeling. It's all about the closeness and even just cradling him and that feeling that that sensor and motor feeling of of be, of of warmth. And so it kind of reminds me of what you're talking about with with older people, which I you know you maybe don't cuddle them as as someone who's working with them professionally, but not during COVID, right? Well, especially not during COVID. <laughs> but the the tone of voice you yeah. use, the the just um, honoring them, right? Just honoring them and hearing what they have to say and letting them know they can. They can call me back, which they do in a minute, and we have the exact same conversation over and over again. And the question people always ask me, don't you ever break down and just say, you just said that to me. And I said, that is my goal to never utter those words. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I can say, as we have we have talked, you know, in the many times that we've had such good conversations about this, some of them even today, we've had such great conversations about this, and blah, blah, and then I'll go on. But I never say, we just talked about that. You just said that to right. me. That Those are like the taboo swear words of dementia. Yeah. Because immediately, whether they'll remember that you just said those words they will remember the shame that came with hearing those words. Yeah, yeah. And there's shame with that. Sure. I mean, if anybody, I don't care, dementia or no dementia, if you tell a story, you know, we all say, if I've ever told you this, stop me now. You know, right. we do that as self-protection because it's a horrible feeling for someone to say, you've already told me that. Right, right. As if it's such a big deal to... <laughs> to hear it twice. But there's, right. a, there's a, I, at least I personally feel a little bit of shame when people say that. It's yeah, just, you're real embarrassed. Like, right. wow, whoa, sorry. Right. It's like, well, I've told that story to like a hundred people. So, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I always assume when I'm talking to you guys, you and Tom, that I've told you the story before because we've talked so much about so many things. But, um, you know, I, another thing that I know that you do in your work is um, you find artifacts. Uh, and whether it's, you know, you're cleaning out someone's house or helping a family clean out their house uh, of someone who's passed or um, you're looking at old letters to try and figure out something that may be missing. Um, it's it's almost like, you know, and I've, I, I've only had experience with this with my own relatives or even with myself finding old relics of, of the past. But it's almost like these are, are little artifacts that live on beyond the person. It's like a little piece of them from when they were. Uh, when when their mind was still you know uh, it, you know not not degraded, right. um, 
you know, it, it, I, it just it just makes me realize, like, I, I was talking about this last night. We were talking about a picture that you saw of your grandmother. Right. And I was wondering if you would share that. Yeah, that we, so it's Passover and we um, and it's COVID. So, of course, we could not all gather. But one of the beauties of Passover uh, of COVID, excuse me, and we did this last year is that it has allowed us to gather with people we would normally not be able to be um, celebrating a holiday with. And um, we're all tired of COVID and we're all tired of all of it. And I think no one in our family was really up for doing it. A year ago, we were up for trying to do a makeshift, the best, most meaningful Zoom Passover we could have. This year, nobody, we've had a lot of loss. We've had a lot going on. Nobody was up for it this year. But we knew, thanks to your lovely, wonderful wife, Liza, my daughter, we decided we got to do something. So we called in all of uh, my first cousins on my mom's side at very last minute and told everyone to get on Zoom. And um, we realized that last night was the second Passover Seder, which uh, in 1969 was the night that our grandmother on my mom's side. So all of these people that were on the Zoom last night, and there were probably 30 of us, um, it was their, maybe even more, but it was all of their grandmas too either grandmother or great-grandmother or great-great-grandmother. So we could talk about Grandma Sarah, and everyone knew who we were talking about. And at the end of the, um, and Grandma Sarah died after that Seder. We all gathered a very small group of just my immediate family um, and a couple uncles um, gathered at my grandparents' house. And after dinner, my grandmother, who I had, I adored, adored, I was 12 years old, and she had been gone for the winter and had returned two days earlier and she was a pious woman and cleaned, cleaned, cleaned for Passover like no other. And I think she wore herself out. And then she uh, contributed to the Seder the night before, which was at someone else's house. And then she insisted on having the second one at her house. And she always went all out. She was a fabulous cook. And at the end of the dinner, I remember walking to the bathroom and I saw her in her bedroom standing by the window with the window open. It was still cold out and she was trying to catch air. And my mom walked by and said, Mom, are you okay? And she said, well, I can't really breathe. And they called an ambulance and, and took her to the hospital. And she died on the way to the hospital uh, of a heart attack. And it, it's just held in our family forever. Yeah. And so the second Seder is important. It was always really important to my mom and to clearly to us. We did it last night. But at the end of the Seder, one of my sisters sent a picture of my grandma from the night from that first Seder night, which was the night before she died. And it was just, really, this is from 1969. And I looked at that picture. I remembered the dress. I remembered the piping on the dress. I remembered her shoes. I remembered her glasses. I remember all of it like it had happened yesterday. And, you know, it just shows sort of the, you and I then start talking about legacy. Yeah. And what, um, you know, what we, how we can keep, and then from there, actually, we talked about this woman who came to America. Um, in fact, just this morning when I was thinking about doing this today, I looked again, we have a, a Facebook page for um, her family. It's called the Goldman Family Facebook mm-hmm. page. And we looked on it and I could see the manifest of where she came over from this country. And she was the oldest. At that time, there were, I think, only three children that ended up, ended up to be eight children. But she was the, um, she was just a little girl, came over on a ship from Poland. They went through Liverpool. And, um, and from her, we have, you know, that I can count, you know, 70 living members. Yeah. Just from her. 
Right. I mean, that one little girl coming over on a ship, yeah. 70 living members today, who looked at a picture of her and talked about her, you know, the anniversary of her death from, you know, all those years ago. I can't do my math right now, but many years ago. And, you know, and she still lives on. It's like, what a dream that would be. Yeah. And we talked about, wouldn't that be cool if... Yeah, if you, yeah, well, it's, I, I used to feel, even recently, is a couple of years ago, whenever I would hear anybody talk about like some great, great relative and they would say, you know, in 71, they moved here. And then after that, they came this way. And I'm like, man, I really hope that when I'm long gone and my great grandkids are sitting around that they're not being like, was he in Silver Spring in 2010? No, <laughs> then he was in suburban Silver Spring in 2012. But now that I think about it more, I mean, it's kind of a funny example, but you know, it's different. It's it's different because a lot of the our, our older relatives were immigrants and, and came. That was from their places. story. Was the immigrant mm-hmm. story? That's but not also your story. It's, but it's like what you're saying. It's like they were like the start of this gigantic web of family, right. and to know how that web transpired, how it was, how it was created, I think is really important now that I think about it more. So. I guess like it's it's a little embarrassing to think of me being the subject of this. Like I could be the start of some big. You are well, period. yeah, it's true. You it's are. not even. It's, <laughs> it's, right. it's it's weird to think I might be. Well, you have you have Desi. It has right. started. It has started. It has started. <laughs> so whether you like it or not, it happened. And and also the other thing that's fascinating, I've been talking about a lot with like, with within our family is that like there, there's now more. I I think I was out of all the cousins on on you know that Liza has. Um, I think we were one of the first to get married and one of the first to have a kid, of course, of that generation. Exactly. Um, And it's just so funny to think that, like, I think about, you know, the fact that at some point in in your generation, uh, there were newcomers to the family, people getting married. And it, you know, I'm sure they were accepted as family and everything. But, you know, now I look at, like, for instance, uh, Tom's sister, Nancy, and her husband, Steve, and they're just Steve and Nancy to me. I don't think of them as like, oh, Steve was this person that came into the family and then she joined his family. I just think of them as they're Steve and Nancy. And that's what we're becoming, our generation. And and our family's also very into that. You know, when I would talk about uh, my niece, Sarah, my niece, Sarah, but she was married to my nephew. Right. But, you, you know, it's not until, you know, it's like, do you really want that detail? She's my niece. Yeah. I mean, that's right. the other good or bad with our family. You're in, you're in. You're in. You're in. <laughs> I, I was in from the moment I stepped foot in Minneapolis in 2004. <laughs> that's how I felt. Yeah. I mean, I can say the word son-in-law, but but frankly, your mom treated Liza like that yeah. always. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom my mom refers to Liza as a child, as a daughter. I mean, it's it's dicey, of course, because you want to be respectful of, of the actual roles and all of that. But yeah, the in-law thing always is so interesting because it's like, oh, they're my mother-in-law, though. <laughs> Not really, but it's just you know the legally it's you know they 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 they're, they could I could use them. But as I a password. kind of like having the the role of I'm not your mom. I mean, right. one of the nice things about our relationship is we don't have much. When now we you've been with Liza for so long, we are starting to get you know a lot of history, and hopefully it, there's not a you know a lot of crap there with it. <laughs> but but you know all parents and kids have their stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. We don't have much. I mean now we're getting it because we've been together for so right. long. But but it's not the same, and right. I think that's the beautiful role of of an in law, a healthy in law role. I had phenomenal in laws. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! And one of the best parts of that relationship was I was not there. I mean, why I started my work was because my father in law sat me down when he got sick and said, "You can." He wanted me to help him when he got sick. He sat me down and said, "I need you to help me because I'm going to die." Right. And I was upset, of course. And he said, here's the deal. You're not my daughter. My dad was alive at the time. 
Right. Said, you and I are close, but you're not my daughter, and therefore you can do that. Or I'm not your father. You can do this. And I think it's really one of the sweetest roles of in-laws is that you're in, but you don't, you're not in with the baggage. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I, I think about that a lot with Desi because, you know, when when we found out we were having a child, you know, instantly, I mean, I was excited, but instantly I was also nervous and I was also like, oh my gosh, it's a child. Like, how am I going to be able to do this? Like, it seems like I should be able to do this. Everyone seems to make their way through it, but like, I don't want to like mess this kid's life up or anything, you know? And, um, and, it, and suddenly it dawned on me at some point that like, you know, this is your child and, you know, if, if, let's say you have another one or let's say you don't, whatever it is. Like that child will grow up one day and maybe get married to somebody and then they'll bring that person home and then that person will be my family and they might have a a child of their own and I'll have a grandchild and that person will be part of my family. And it's like, oh man, like it's like you said earlier, like I don't really think I felt the gravity of what I've started here, what we've started here. And maybe it's just as well. I mean, sometimes we just have to like. You want a family? Have a family. I mean, that just yeah. it comes with it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, yeah. I mean, right. well, we were we were also talking about how you know this idea of legacy. It's the reason why I have this weird bug, I guess, or this weird gene where I have to create things. Right. Like ever since I was a tiny tiny child, like even with a tape recorder, I'd walk around and make radio shows and make up songs. Like ever since I was like tiny and then could you know early childhood um and it's just lasted (laughs) even this podcast is a manifestation of that of that need um and so you know i i like to think of it as like these are the things that like my great 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 grandkids will find one day of me if they're ever interested and like we were talking about i keep a journal that nobody reads but me Uh, occasionally i'll read entries to Liza just as like a way of it. Remember when this happened? But I publish it every year, just one book, just for me. No one else can order it or anything. It's just a special order. And, th- you know, those exist. And you had brought up the fact that, you know, someone actually will, like, because I've done this work, like someone actually might find that one day. So just be careful of what you put in there because, or, or, or burn them at some point or something like that. And it's a really good point. And I don't write anything in there that I wouldn't be comfortable with someone reading when I'm long gone. There's nothing that's so deeply deeply well, I've just seen personal. them where people have a big fat note on the front that says, please, this is private. Nobody read, which it's just like, yeah. okay, that is like saying, Invitation. please read. I'm gone. <laughs> right. You have very little left of me. You've got this. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, yeah. I have yet to meet, and you know, I've only seen a couple of them that are like that, but really they all feel like that. Sure. Because yeah. um, they weren't see, expecting anyone else. Yeah. To, I mean, mine are very boring, you know, to be clear. I mean, it'd be one of those things where it's like, you know, where, where did I live in 2000, you know, 2011. Right, but people have old love letters from the army, from people that were yeah. not the, the kid's dad and didn't know about him. And, and um, you start reading it. And quite often I say, if this is not helpful for you, feel free to get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. Feel free. And and if you feel that you should not be reading them, get rid of them. Right. Don't save them for the next person who shouldn't be reading them to read them. Yeah. Get rid of them. But that's another thing to think about is like, you could also think of it as this could be for you now and keep in mind that like it could be for your great, great grandkid one day. Uh, you know, what are you saying? What are you going to write? You know, what is important to you? And it's also, to me, making art, which, you know, maybe some people wouldn't consider a journal entry art, but making songs, stories, books, whatever it is that, you know, our whole family is is doing right now. Um, this podcast is, is a piece of history that someone will listen to one day, <laughs> I think, probably, hopefully. Um, but it's, it's just, it, to me, it's the closest thing to immortality that I can think of. And we're all going to die, like you said. 
but our our the way we affect people can live on. Like the way that like I've read books of authors who have died long before I was born and they've affected me. And that is so cool that you can leave an imprint, a lasting like echo that can change how you think about things, that change change who you are. It's like having a mentor and you can choose who that mentor is depending on the type of media you consume. And now, of course, everybody will have, not everybody, but a lot more people will have that library, that body of work, so to speak, through their social media, you know, like unless they delete their Instagram accounts or whatever. I mean, unless Instagram goes out of business, you know, it's it's possible that in decades from now, when, when some folks are long gone, uh, you'll find comfort looking through their Instagram. Their kids and grandkids will find comfort looking through their Instagram and being like, these are all the cool pictures. This was what was important to them. Yeah, they took pictures of their lunch every day, but that was important to them for whatever well, reason. Well, Facebook knows how to do, I don't know if Instagram does, it's owned by Facebook, so they must, but right. they do these legacy accounts when people die. Right. It's a, it's a totally different kind of a, a legacy account. Um, yeah, it's a, um, you know, I think we have to live, I think we, we always should have our foot in two different worlds. The world that you're in now is so important. You don't want too much to live in the past, but, but I think you carry it with you. You stand on the shoulders of your past. You, it's part of you, you honor it and you respect it. Yeah. But, but, but I do think it's important to think there will be a time when I won't be here. Right. And what do I, you know, what lasting effect would I like to leave in this world? And it may just be people. It may be, I mean, but then you think about like, you'll ask someone, what do you remember about your grandma's brother? And they'll be like, I think he had really big feet because I remember his <laughs> shoes. And literally that's the only memory you have. That's so funny you say that. Because his shoes were big and I remember his shoes were bigger than my dad's shoes. And I always thought they were funny big shoes. That's all I remember about right. Uncle Bill. And you're right. going, oh, I don't want to be that relative that you know there's a there's an essayist named tim Kreider. i don't know if you know his work oh it's he has a great book called um oh man i don't remember the name of it he has a great essay in it about how he was stabbed in the throat he was like violently stabbed in the throat and he survived and um and and fully recovered and he said to um his whole world like now that now that i've recovered from this thing that i could have died from i am not going to give uh, you know, I'm not going to care about anything bad. And like, if I get cut off in traffic, I don't care. If somebody does something rude to me, I don't care. Um, and for a year, he was just happy. He just did, did nothing bothered him. And then after a year, it started to wear off, which I thought was a really fascinating thing. But one of the things he writes about in a different essay is the fact that, um, like the, the thing, it's exactly what you're saying. It's the things he remembers about people um, that he's like, I would like for my children to remember me as, you know, my qualities, my good qualities. You know, he was like this. And one time we had this warm conversation and he's like, but you don't get to choose what people remember about you. And so he's like, cause I, I, when I think about my dad, I think about him sleeping next to me in a movie theater because he would take me to see these movies, these sci-fi movies that I was into and he didn't really care about them. So he would just fall asleep. And so my memory is just of my dad snoring next to me in a theater. And he's like, but then when I really dig into that a bit, it's like, you know, he had this kindness that he was willing to go to this thing that he didn't really care about just to make me happy. And so there's that feeling that remains. So um, I think this is, this is a good place to, to wrap this up. And unless, unless there was other no. stories or anything you wanted to share. Um, but I wanted to ask you, because you were just mentioning, you know, thinking about how you want to leave your mark in the world, how people will remember you. And while we can't have full control over how everybody remembers us, uh, how do you want to be remembered? Hmm. That's a good one. 
um, you know, the, the, um, the play in and of itself. And if anyone is listening to this podcast and has not seen the movie in and of itself, I really recommend seeing it. On Hulu. On Hulu. Not sponsored by Derek Delgadio, but yes, fantastic show. <laughs> and um, we I saw it live in uh, New York. And when you walk into the theater, you pick out, they have uh, little cards all around the walls saying, I am. And it's everything from I am a plumber to I am a loser to I am a sister. I am, I am thousands and thousands. And I like the one that I picked. And, you know, obviously there are thousands. So you, I could have said, I am. Uh, brunette. I mean, that would have right. been true. I could have said anything. Um, I happened to pick the one that said, I am a good doer. And I would like to be remembered that way. Yeah. I think people, I think people will remember you right now that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for being, thank you for coming on this show today. This is a last minute thing that I just oh, kind of threw at it, you last Zia. night. But I like, like what we're talking about. I think this is one of those pieces of art that hopefully and I'm, I don't plan to delete any of my podcasts ever, um, will live on and that uh, our, our children, great-grandchildren and and so on and so forth will listen back to and say, ah, well, so And I now. recommend that people after they listen to this should go, and this is completely unsolicited. Zia doesn't even know what I'm going to say now. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but I recommend you go and try and find his music and listen to my fa- current favorite song of Zia's. I know I'll have more. I think it's called Something New. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it is a song that shows you sort of the wisdom of why you are such a uh, kind of a wise soul. I'm not going to say wise old soul, <laughs> but you're a wise soul that uh, you, old. that song, <clears throat> the reason I love it, I like the tune of it. I mean, I like the melody, but I really like what that song says about, um, about genes and about who we are and about, about the blend of families and all of it. Um, so I think that speaks a lot to this podcast as well well thank you that's Amy. a good follow-up i think we'll uh i think we'll close out to that song i'll put a little recording of that song oh, good. Uh, popping in right here
for sticking around till the end of the podcast. This is Zia Hassan, and this is my weekly podcast, Gently Down the Stream. If you don't know me, I am an educator, a trainer, and a coach. And this podcast and my coaching practice are for people who want to change their lives. This podcast is meant for teaching and for learning and for inspiration. But if you want to spend some time with me and focus on you and the wisdom that you have, you can book a coaching session with me at ziahassan.coach. And together we can figure out what your core values are, which is something that most people have not considered, have not actually dug into. Most people don't know what their core values are, or if they think they know them, they are sometimes wrong. We can navigate a dilemma in your life and figure out the next best step for you to take. And through small changes, you can have a big transformation. My podcast is all about what I value and stand for. But when you coach with me, we figure out what you value, what you stand for, what you believe, and what actions are necessary for you to take to live a life that is meaningful to you, to connect to the things that you want to connect with and say no to everything else. So if you're interested in booking a session with me, check out ziahassan.coach, and I will see you next Tuesday.